Hello, this is Christopher Domicio, and this is A Very Good Novel, Coronavirus, Chapter 23, titled Walk, Don't Run. If you want to hear the previous chapters or have read the whole thing, it's free at averygoodnovel.com. Chapter 23, Walk, Don't Run. Things were happening faster than anyone could have predicted, but if the pandemic taught us anything, it was that people were capable of adapting to any situation much faster than they thought they could. On the heels of the California secession, the USPS declared a general strike and walkout. On the surface, this was a demand for higher pay and more PPE, personal protective equipment, to be issued, but beneath the surface, it was ROP 1-75 being put into play. ROP 1-75 had several purposes and layers. The most important was the re-headquartering of the USPS. This had been put into play after the threat of Washington, D.C. or other major cities being destroyed by a nuclear weapon had materialized. The entire command and control structure of the USPS could be easily replicated in multiple cities. There was an entire secondary and tertiary command structure set up. The new postmaster general had no idea that any of this existed since Megan Brennan had not updated him. Using the password she'd gotten from the former chief postal inspector, David Williams, Brennan activated the emergency system. She logged into the ROP 1-75 Emergency Command Center. Her credentials were still good and no super user had been created since she had decided to stop the chain of custody. The entire emergency command center was something else DeJoy was completely unaware of. She ticked the box labeled re HQ and entered the password 19 eggnog 27 parties. She was asked multiple times if she was sure, which she was, and finally the screen gave her a choice of where she wanted to move command and control of the USPS. The options were New York City, Denver, Austin, Chicago, and San Francisco. There were also options to split and disperse command and control. Each city had a command team that had been put in place and approved by herself and David Williams at the beginning of her tenure as Postmaster General. DeJoy had not been in the new office long enough to start changing up the regional branch leadership teams, although he had fired nearly all of Brennan's team in the DCHQ. She selected Disperse. Effectively, the USPS had just been carved into five fully functional organizations. Since she'd already accepted the role of Postmaster General in Newsom's California, she still held authority. Despite the revolt, the USPS had kept operating in both the United States and the breakaway countries. Trump, DeJoy, and the rest of the Trumpist organizations still hadn't realized the threat that the Postal Service truly represented. They were about to learn. Next, she selected Walkout from the drop-down menu. Under cause, she wrote better wages and more PPE issued. The pandemic was still raging, so it made sense. As an afterthought, she wrote solidarity with evicted residents. She ticked one more box before logging out. Arm. This action was perhaps the most significant. Under the cover of a walkout, postal vehicles would be upgraded to military standards, sidearms and weapons would be issued from the postal armories, and all postal workers were now authorized to carry weapons and use deadly force. Standing contracts with the mercenary armies were activated. The main purpose of this was to protect postal interests, but essentially it gave each regional postmaster general a standing army. In effect, she'd just created five armies. The D.C. headquarters was left out of all of the decisions since the disperse order was supposed to only be initiated if D.C. was destroyed. This was fine because it was now filled with DeJoy's cronies and they would not have complied anyway. When she had learned that she had been displaced in the USPS, Brennan had decided to stay in California. It was a good decision. Her San Francisco office was an upgrade from the dump she'd worked in from, from in D.C., and the upgrade in technology she got by coming to Silicon Valley was like living in a new century. Things happened fast in Silicon Valley, and within days of independence, a San Francisco stock exchange was set up. 
and it was running. The entire system was run on the OX blockchain. California-based companies and those who wanted to continue doing business in California were required to convert shares to the OX platform. These shares were issued into blockchain wallets of customers, or if the customers didn't have wallets, were held in public trust on the blockchain. The U.S. dollar to Bitcoin conversion had issued crypto wallets to every registered California citizen using the social security number to create public keys. By the end of July, Wells Fargo had brought their crypto division online and all California funds and California accounts had been converted to Bitcoin, which were held in conservancy by a joint venture of Wells Fargo, Coinbase, and the nation of California. The opening of the San Francisco Stock Exchange and the conversion of the OX shares caused panic in the equities markets of the East Coast. There was a rush on cryptocurrency companies and California-based corporate valuations went through the roof. Amazon shares had plummeted on the news that USPS would no longer be subsidizing shipping, but the SFSE gave a boost to Amazon and other Cascadian companies as well, among them Microsoft, Starbucks, Costco, Nike, Boeing, and T-Mobile. Shares were still trading on the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, but power was shifting to the West. Trump's attempts to have rebel-held companies blacklisted failed as no one wanted to give up their shares of Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, or the hundreds of other tech and logistics companies that were headquartered in California, Cascadia, or Hawaii. To put things in perspective, it makes sense to throw some numbers at you here. The United States is the world's largest economy. This didn't change when the five states left. Prior to the split, the USA represented about 24% of the world's gross domestic product. China, the number two economy, represented about 15% of the world's GDP. California, Cascadia, and Hawaii represented now about 20% of the U.S. gross domestic product. So when you factor those numbers out of the U.S. GDP, you're left with the USA still being the world's largest economy. But instead of leading by 9%, the U.S. now was within spitting distance of China. Here's how the new world order stacked up. At number one was the USA, generating 19% of the world's economy. Number two was China, generating 16% of the world's economy. Number three, Japan, generating 6% of the world's economy. Number four, California, Cascadia, and Hawaii, or CC&H, generating 5% of the world's economy. And at number five, Germany, generating 4.5% of the world's economy. These were followed by India, the UK, France, Brazil, and Italy to round out the top ten. CCNH was now the fourth largest economy in the world, and in terms of military powers, it ranked right around the same because of the Navy it had commandeered in San Diego and Hawaii, and the nuclear arsenal and air force it now controlled in California, Hawaii, and Washington. The entire balance of world power had just shifted. Russia had been knocked out of the top ten economies. Putin was pissed, but as the coronavirus ravaged Russia, there was nothing he could do but watch from afar. One of the first things Newsom had done upon taking power was shutting down the Russian spy operation. Russian-owned and influenced conservative networks were nationalized. Russian troll farms were shut down on the social networks with rapid executive legislation. And unknown Russian operatives, excuse me, and known Russian operatives were rounded up and interred with the Trumpists or released into Arizona or Utah. By the end of July, the post office had been divided and the USA central command of it had been neutered thanks to the disperse order. Since the walkout had been ordered, DeJoy and Washington, D.C. were still oblivious to the fact that they were no longer in control. CCNH had signed a non-aggression treaty with Japan, China, Canada, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and most of the European nations. The IRS was, IRS was scrambling to make sense of the confusion that had come from delaying tax payments, the revolt of the CCNH, and the chaos of COVID-19. Eviction and foreclosure notices were flying out of the courts and sheriff's offices were across the remaining states, remaining 45 states. 
Mostly they were being ignored, but the number of homeless in places they were being enforced doubled, tripled, and quadrupled rapidly. The number of unemployed and homeless was impossible to count due to everything that was happening, but the last numbers in the old United States, representing June, were released and showed that unemployment had reached right around 40% of eligible workers and nearly 50% when including those who stopped looking for work. Military fortifications had been quickly constructed along the borders of Idaho, Utah, and Arizona. Arizona had lost some territory to California before anyone had really understood what was going on. Tribal zones in Arizona and the former Nevada became quasi-neutral zones where citizen exchanges took place as CCNH citizens made their way home and non-CCNH citizens headed back into the USA. Tribal organizations were enjoying an economic boom and because of the pandemic were exercising more autonomy than at any time in the history of the USA. While many expected that the citizens' exchanges would cause yet another wave of the deadly pandemic that had swept through the heartland of the USA, it never happened. Instead, Gaia's virus spread faster than ever to the areas where it had not yet been exposed. As August began, the deadly pandemic started by Russia and Trumpists had largely been neutralized, but the changes that it caused would never go away. Bob watched everything that was happening with a sense of powerlessness. He was a bigger part of everything than he knew. The post box and the organization he had spawned had made it possible for the post office and Newsom to do much more than they understood, than even they understood. It wasn't over for Bob, though. He still had a role to play. As he watched news footage of people being evicted from their homes and postal workers marching in strike lines, he had the most important idea of his life. Thankfully, he immediately posted it on the post box server. What if we used postal picket lines to keep people from being evicted, he said. What if we harnessed the awesome logistics power of the post office to deliver food, medical supplies, and end hunger? What if we turned the postal service into an army for the betterment of humanity? In truth, every postal worker is a hero. It was no surprise that his ideas exploded on the post box and spread like wildfire through the striking postal workers. Everyone from leadership, but not in D.C., to the lowest ranks loved the idea. Their energy fed Bob's energy. He was fired up. I'm going to leave California, walk across America to end poverty and homelessness, Bob virtually screamed onto the server. Gaia's words came back to him. Sometimes the best tactic is to move towards your enemy. I'm walking to Washington, D.C., he said again. Millions of his followers decided that they would take part too. It was a literal movement of people from one place to many other places. That's the end. You can find the whole thing at AVeryGoodNovel.com. And that's just the end of chapter 23. Chapter 24 is coming up next.